Good morning again. This morning I have two questions for you to think about that they may seem unrelated, but they will tie together. The first question is, are you struggling? Are you struggling? And the second question is, as you see on the screen, do you understand? Do you understand? Let me explain a bit more. That first question, are you struggling? Are you in a place in your life where you're struggling, where life is hard? Perhaps you're wrestling with some unexpected news. Maybe there's a life event that's had a lot of unforeseen change in your life that's made it difficult. Maybe there's a health issue that you or a loved one is going through. Are you struggling? And if your answer to any of those questions or to that is yes, then I have the second question, which is, do you understand? And my que- what I mean by that is not, do you understand why that's happening to you? Do you understand why you're struggling? That's not the question. No, my question is, do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand who Jesus is and what he can do for you? Do you understand that Jesus is God? He is the one who can calm your fears. He has the power to help you. Or perhaps you're hard-hearted against that reality. And maybe you're trapped by those struggles. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying up here saying there's something wrong with you. You need to fix it. You need to figure it out. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're definitely doing something wrong. Because just because you believe the right things about Jesus, that doesn't mean life suddenly gets easier and all the problems go away. I'm not trying to beat you down. What I'm trying to do is give you, really also give me hope. I need to remember and when I'm struggling, that I need to look at Jesus. And so my challenge for all of us is to look at Jesus. When life is hard, do we cling to the reality of who Jesus is, to his character, his identity? If you've been here at church, you know we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the four Gospels, the four books that talks about who Jesus is. And in this book, we've been seeking to answer this question, who is Jesus? We've been unpacking his character. Last week, one of our members, Josh, spoke to us about Jesus feeding the multitude and how it showed us Jesus' compassion for us. Well, today we're going to look at what we need to understand about Jesus from the next passage, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. And this story can also be found in Matthew 14 and John 6, but we're going to look at here in Mark 6. And what we will learn is that Jesus is God. He is the one who can calm our fears. But we need to beware of a hard heart and instead trust in his power. So if you're not already there, I'd ask you to please turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. It's big 6, little 45 is where we're starting. You can use the Bible in the seat back in front of you will also be on the screen. And once you are there, if you are able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and follow along as I'm going to read this passage for us today. Again, Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Starting in verse 45, begins this way. Immediately he, talking about Jesus, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone 
on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 51, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that when we are struggling, we can cling to you, we can come to you. It's often difficult because we get trapped by our own hard hearts, our own situations, God. But I pray that through your word this morning, you would direct our focus, Lord, to who you are. That you are God and you are the one who calms fears. You are the one with all power. May we depend on you, run to you, be with you as you are with us in the difficult moments of life. I pray for those who don't know you that they would see that you are one worth coming to. May our focus today move from our burdens, our struggles to see how great and glorious you are. May you increase, may we decrease. Lord, may your son Jesus be our focus this morning. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you have the handout that you should have received when you came in, the way I'm going to structure this is asking four questions, four things that we can understand about Jesus or about relating to him from this passage. And the first question, the first truth for us to understand is, do you understand that Jesus is God? This story shows us that Jesus is God. In fact, this event takes place immediately after what we talked about last week, Jesus feeding a multitude. We're told it's 5,000 men, was probably more than that. Mark, if you remember, we've, we've seen in his gospel, he uses this word immediately a lot. So immediately right after that, the crowd is dismissed and dispersed, and Jesus sends his disciples, his 12 closest followers, off in a boat by themselves. They're to go to the other side of the sea. It's really a lake that's called Galilee. As verse 45 says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to a town called Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. The idea we get is that they're reluctant to do this. After all, they've just seen this great miracle. They're probably enjoying it. Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed this huge crowd. It's amazing. But still, they obey Jesus, they get into the boat, and they head out. 
And you may also remember, it was a couple weeks ago, we talked about another time they were in the boat, and this is a picture of a boat from the time of Jesus that they found in the Sea of Galilee. So you can see it's obviously beat up after 2,000 plus years, but you can see it's pretty exposed to the elements. There would have been a sail in the middle, but we're not talking about a luxury yacht or a cruise line. No, they are in this little boat exposed to nature around them. And they head out into the sea, and it's a key truth to recognize Jesus told them to go. He sent them here. And we've already read it, so we know a windstorm is going to come. But that storm was not a surprise to Jesus. It was a surprise to the disciples for sure, but not to him. And he's going to use it to show his glory, to show that he is God. But for now, we're told in the text that Jesus, he went up on a nearby mountain to pray by himself. Verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. This was something Jesus enjoyed doing. He enjoyed getting away, having time to talk to his heavenly father. Another passage that talks about this is Luke 6. It phrases it as something he does more than once. It says, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That's not our focus this morning, but that is a model to us. If we're going to follow Jesus, we should seek the Lord in prayer as well. Right now, what's happening, though, is Jesus is talking to God about what's about to happen. We're entering a section of Mark where he is going to show his disciples more and more who he is, that he is God. And he must have wanted to talk to the Lord about that as he reveals his identity to them. And then we get to the meat of our story here. It's the middle of the night. The disciples are in the boat on the sea, and Jesus is alone on the mountain. We're told this takes place in the fourth watch of the night, which is about sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., so very late in the night, almost morning time. And that description, fourth watch, was something the Romans used, which perhaps is showing us that Mark is not writing to a Jewish audience, but to people who maybe aren't as familiar with uh, Jesus or with Jewish customs. He's trying to bring them in to this story. But regardless, at this time of night, Jesus looks and he sees that the disciples, my translation has, were making headway painfully. Others bringing it up this way, that they were suffering, they were straining against the oars of the boat because the wind was so strong against them. Jesus told them to go somewhere, and they're trying as hard as they can, but the wind is bearing down on them. We're not really told so much that it was a storm with like lightning or thunder. It's more that there's this strong wind. So maybe it's not so much they're in danger for their lives, though they could have been, they'd been rowing a long time, but more they're desperately trying to get where Jesus has told them to go, and they're just struggling to do it. And I think that's encouraging because often, if we're following Jesus, we find it very difficult to follow the course of life he's laid out for us here in his word. One pastor, Kent Hughes, says this way, if you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, then you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows because you're carrying your commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to things that the uncommitted heart will never experience. They were faithfully following what Jesus said, and they found it incredibly difficult to get there. And that's because Jesus doesn't promise a life of ease. What he does promise is that he will be with us even when things are hard. 
So Jesus is up on the mountain. He sees their need, and he starts heading to his followers by walking on top of the water across the sea to get to them. That's what verse 48 says. He saw they were making headway painfully. The wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He literally walked on the water to them. This is not a myth. It's not an illusion. This is something that really happened. Now, maybe you scoff at that. You say, I don't think that really happened. People can't walk on water. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I want to affirm that. Yes, people cannot walk on water. Jesus is fully human, but he is so much more. He is also fully God. This is something the Bible describes God as doing, particularly in the Old Testament. For example, the book of Isaiah says, the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty water. The book of Job describes God as the one who stretched out the heavens and the one who trampled the waves of the sea. Jesus is doing this. He is walking across the water, probably for miles, to get to where the disciples are. He made his own way to save his own people. Now, there's an interesting phrase at the very end of verse 48. It says, he meant to pass by them, pass by them. And there's a lot of debate about that. But from looking at it, what seems most consistent here is not that he's trying to ignore them, not that he's trying to walk across, race them to the other side or anything. But by using that phrase, pass by them, it means he's showing them his glory as God, as the Son of God. And the reason I say that is because the word that's used there for that passing by is also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to talk about God's glory. Let me show you a couple places. One is in the book of Exodus. Moses says to God in Exodus 33, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. That's how that word's used about God coming past someone. He says, I will proclaim my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then in the next chapter, that's exactly what happens. In chapter 34, the Lord descended in a cloud. He stood with Moses there, proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word talks about God showing his glory. A similar thing happens later to a prophet named Elijah. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19. God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And what did that look like? Well, there was a great strong wind that tore the mountains, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. That's just a beautiful verse. That's why I put it there. But what I'm showing you is the Lord's glory passed by. That's how that word, that phrase is used. Even when I was talking about God walking on the water in the Old Testament or those descriptions, the one passage I used was Job chapter 9. Later in that chapter, it will say that God is passing by me after he just talked about him trampling on the waves. The point is in our text, when it says that Jesus meant to pass by, it means he meant to show them his glory, his divinity, who he is. 
He meant to give them a picture. I am God, because this is something only God can do. And this was how Jesus revealed who he was. He didn't come down and say, hey guys, I'm God, let's talk about it. That's not the way he did it. Instead, through all these various miraculous instances, these moments, expression of divine power, he revealed that truth to them so they could come to understand and grasp it. He passed by on the water so that the disciples would understand that he is God. It was his pattern to use the miraculous, to make them think, to make them come to this conclusion. We saw this earlier in Mark. After he calmed a storm, Mark 4.41 says that they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And once again, through this act in our passage today, walking on the water, he is answering that question. He is God. But again, my question to you is, do you understand that truth, that Jesus is God? Do you think that's true, that that man, Jesus Christ, is God? Do you believe that? Or do you just believe, well, that guy, Jesus, yeah, he probably lived, lots of people talk about him, but he must have just been a good teacher, a good man who had a big impact. And you can think that, but my question to you is, what do you make of what we just read here in this passage, in this ancient book? Is this just a lie that was told multiple times by hundreds of people when it couldn't benefit them at all? The people who wrote this down and shared it, they didn't get wonderful lives or great riches. Most of them died painful deaths. Why would they share this lie about somebody walking on water? So maybe it's just a lie, or this is evidence that God himself, in human form, the divine Son of God, really lived here among us. And the reason that he was here was for us. He lived perfectly so that he could die and make a way for us to know God personally. He did that so that we would know him. Do you understand that Jesus is God? Now maybe you think, okay, Jesus is God, so what? Well, what does that mean for my life today? Well, what impact does that have in my day-to-day -day living? Well, do you also understand that Jesus calms our fears. Jesus calms our fears. The disciples see Jesus walking on water and they understandably react with a lot of fear to seeing this expression of God's glory. They know humans can't walk on water, so what they're seeing must not be human. And unfortunately, they come to the wrong answer. They conclude, well, it must be a ghost or an evil spirit, perhaps trying to hurt us or deceive us. As they say in verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. Now, when it says ghost, let's, let's be clear, honest with each other, ghost as we see in movies, TV shows, and things like that, horror movies, ghosts, as we imagine, aren't real. They're not. But the fear of the unknown is universal across mankind. They see something they do not understand, and it terrifies them. And let's cut them a little slack. If you were on a boat in the middle of a big windstorm and all of a sudden somebody walks by you on the water, that would be pretty terrifying. We're not told who it was, but I feel really bad for whoever the first one was who saw him. That must have been the scariest jump scare of that man's life to look at, oh my goodness, there's somebody walking 
on the water next to me. Verse 50 says, they all saw him then and were terrified. They're greatly troubled. And it's so interesting how this presents it to us. They're not afraid of this windstorm around them. It's hard. They're not afraid of that. But seeing Jesus, their master, their teacher, their best friend walking on the water, this terrifies them. This brings great fear to them because they didn't expect to see that. Yet in this moment of fear, Jesus speaks to them. He gives his word to them to calm their fears. Look what he says. He says, take heart or take courage, be of good cheer. It is I, I am here. Do not be afraid. He calms them by proclaiming his identity. He says, it's me. It's the one you know. I am here. I'm the one you know and love. And that brings the calm to them. One interesting part of that, though, was in the middle there. It said, it is I, about Jesus using his identity to bring calm. And that's something that God uses to identify himself in the Old Testament. Again, it's the same phrase, the same words used. For example, in the book of Exodus, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? How does God identify himself? And God says to Moses, I am, or in our text it's, it is I, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God uses his identity to bring calm to his people. Here, Jesus does it, but in the Old Testament, we see it at least twice in the book of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 41, he says, for I, the Lord your God, I love this image, I hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. And then two chapters later, look at this. Now, thus now says the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through waters, oh, that's an interesting parallel, I will be with you. And through rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jesus calmed his disciples with his presence, saying who he was. And you know what? He can calm us too. When times are hard, when we're suffering and struggling, we can hope in him, in who he is. Because if we know him, then he is with us, even if we do not fully understand what he is doing. The British pastor J.C. Ryle talks about how Jesus, when he was up on the mountain, he looks and sees his disciples in the storm. And this is what he says. The same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. And we are never beyond the reach of his care. It's the same Jesus, the same God looking at you in whatever situation or circumstance you're going through right now. He sees you. No situation that you experience is beyond his control and his purpose. And perhaps even more importantly than that, he not only sees you, but he loves you. The scholar Danny Aiken puts it this way, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself, which, honest, that, that's a great deal. He is more compassionate than you could ever hope. He is more powerful than you could ever imagine. And he knows your needs more perfectly 
than you or I could ever comprehend. He knows you. And he knows what's happening. I talked about this earlier, but again, this storm the disciples come into, it was not a surprise to God. It was where he wanted them to be. And I think that's encouraging because maybe you're somewhere in life right now where you'd rather not be in this place or this situation that you're in. You'd prefer it if you had your will. If you were the one who was in control, you'd prefer it if things went a little differently. If maybe you had better health or that loved one had better health. You'd prefer it if you had a different job or a different life situation. You'd prefer it if your relationships worked out a little differently. If maybe you uh, had a relationship when you don't, or with someone you have a relationship that's fractured, that it was repaired. You'd prefer it if you had new and different opportunities to explore. And unfortunately, we, we don't always know why the things that happen to us happen to us. I can't stand up here and tell you, yes, I know why this particular thing is happening to you. We may never know why as we are here on earth, but what we can know is that it is in those moments of discomfort and frustration that we can see Jesus's glory the clearest. It's when we're at the lowest that we often have the best look at him. And if we have the eyes to see it, we can see that his perfect goodness exceeds and drowns out the darkness of whatever circumstance we're in. Now, again, don't, don't mishear what I'm saying here. I, I'm not telling you that, well, I'm in this bad situation, and if I just start thinking the right way, then everything's going to work out, and everything's going to be resolved. I'm not telling you there's something specific you need to do to get out of whatever situation there is. Maybe there is. I, I don't know what every single person in this room is going through, but I'm not telling you that definitely you just need to do something and then you'll be there. I'm not saying if you prayed more, then everything would work out in your life and you'd feel better. What I'm saying is that no matter what you're going through and no matter how long you are there, look to Jesus. Wherever you are, Look to him, because as he came for his disciples out on the water, well, he will come for you too, in his timing and in his way. It's rare, though, that he comes when we want, and it's rare for him to come how we want, but in eternity, we will see that his timing was perfect for God's glory and God's praise. Pastor Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Believer, Jesus says to you, I am. Is your wife dead? Is your child to be buried? Have your possessions failed? Is your health departing? Are your joys declining? Alas, it is a dying, fleeting world. But there is one who is always the same. For Jesus says to you, I am. And because I live, you shall live also. He is with us. Now, it is though possible to reject or ignore that good news that he is with us. And so a third thing we need to understand is the danger of a hard heart. Do you understand the danger of a hard heart? Our text tells us that Jesus gets in the boat, and just like before, back in Mark chapter 4, the wind ceased, it stopped, it immediately died down, and the disciples are astounded, they're amazed, they marvel, as many do when they see 
Jesus act in a way that's divine. Verse 51, he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And that sounds like a really good thing. They're astounded, they're amazed, they're about to start praising him, living for him. But instead we're told that their wonder, their amazement was not of faith, but instead was of confusion. It was of doubt, it was of uncertainty from their hard hearts. Verse 51 says they were utterly astounded. Why? For because they did not understand. They did not understand about the loaves, the feeding he had just done, but instead their hearts were hardened. Seeing Jesus multiply food should have proved that he is God to them and he will take care of them. But at this moment right now, they are hard-hearted to that truth. Their hearts are hard against the significance of what happened to them. They're confused. They're fearful. They don't understand. They cannot believe that the one they saw multiply food is also one who can walk on water, who is fully in control over everything in nature. He created food out of nothing. It shouldn't be too hard to believe he can control nature and the elements. Who else could feed thousands? Who else could walk on water but God? But they do not see the truth. One verse I referenced earlier was from Job. It talked about God trampling on the waves. But look what Job says about that God. He then says in Job 9, He passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Like the disciples, he's missing the point. The disciples have seen miracles, him multiplying food, walking on water. The storm is calm, but they miss the point. They do not understand. They haven't gained ultimate insight into who Jesus really is. They're struggling to put all these pieces together. And we're told that this hard-heartedness is going to continue for a while. We're going to see it again when we get to chapter 8. But let's talk about us. It's easy to critique the disciples and say, how how come they didn't figure this out? But remember, we have a great advantage over them. We know the end of the story. We're here at a church. We know Jesus is going to die on a cross. We celebrate Easter. He's going to rise again. They did not know that. They haven't even figured out who Jesus is. They have little to no clue what's going to happen to him and what he is going to do. They have hard hearts. They don't understand, but eventually that will change. John will put it this way in John 12. He says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, after he died, he was buried, he rose again, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. They remembered what the Old Testament said, and they remembered the things that had been done to him. So let me ask you, what do you understand about Jesus? Do you believe that he is who the Bible presents him to be? Or do you doubt that? You say, I'm I'm just not sure if that's true. I understand doubts, but I have to point out to you that is a dangerous reality. Look at these disciples. They are in a boat with Jesus himself, but they are still hard-hearted. You can be here in a church hearing God's word with people who are Christians, followers of God, and still be hard-hearted against God the Lord. Now, our story in the Gospel of Mark is going to show us how these disciples, most of them, come to follow him in faith. But my question for you this morning is, what about you? 
Will you come to know Jesus? If you're far from him, you're unsure, will you say, I'm going to trust him? I'm going to try to understand who he is. If you're unsure, you're like, I just don't know, then keep learning, keep asking questions, keep studying. I'm not saying you need to take doubt out and throw it away. Explore it, ask questions about it, absolutely. You do not have to understand everything at once, but pursue it diligently because we do not have forever. Do not get trapped by a hard heart that leads to eternal separation from God. And if I can encourage you, you should know that he is worth knowing because he also has all power. Do you understand that Jesus has all power? The last few verses of our passage are really a summary statement. They're speaking to the different kinds of healing that Jesus was doing. We're told that he came ashore with his disciples at a different destination from where they set out for. But regardless of that, the crowds are still ready. They're waiting for Jesus. They quickly recognize him and the crowds gather. Let me read 53 through 55. It says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. They moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever They heard he was. And this is a persistent theme throughout the book of Mark. Wherever Jesus is, crowds gather. They come. If they're in need or they know someone who's in need or needs to be healed, they bring him to Jesus. We've already seen this in this very chapter. Back in verse 33, we read that many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, we could be cynical about it. We could say, well, most of these people just want something from Jesus for their own benefit. But I'm saying, move your focus from them and let's look at this person they're coming to. They come to Jesus. Their actions show us they believe Jesus was powerful. They come to him because they know that he can heal. People come because he draws those in need to him. And he alone is the solution to our needs and our hurts. And so what does Jesus do? Well, verse 56 tells us he continues to preach and heal, and even the edge of his clothes heal those who come near to him. Verse 56, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or in countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, they implored and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, this thing about they're touching the edge of his garment, we've seen that before in Mark, just a couple of chapters ago. There was a woman who had a bleeding issue. She reached and she grabbed on, or she touched him barely, and she was healed. And so Mark's using this statement to tell us, yeah, that kind of thing happened more than once. He's not going to share all those stories with us. He thinks we get it, but he's telling us it wasn't just a one-time thing. But the key I want to focus on here is that very last verse as many as touched it, or your translation may have, all who touched it were made well, were healed. And that's a powerful word or powerful phrase, as many as all who did this. Not just the rich, not just the powerful, not just the intelligent or the well-off, not just the super spiritual people, but all, everyone who came to him was healed. Not on the basis of what they did, but based on his power, who he is. Luke will put it this way. He says, and all the crowd sought to touch him, 
for power came out from him and healed them all. This is Jesus's power. He heals all who come to him. Now the disciples were still confused. They were still hard-hearted, but the evidence was clear in front of them. Jesus is God. They've seen it, and he has all power. So let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe he has the power to help you? Do you believe he has the power to save you? The one who has all power and authority, he has a calling to you if you do not know him. His call to you is turn away from sin, turn away from the wrong you do against me and believe, trust in me. Turn away and believe, repent and believe because then you will experience his saving power as the son of God. But maybe you do know him. Then my question is, does knowing Jesus make a difference in your life? Do you truly trust that he is God, that he has power? Does he calm your fears? Again, that does not mean that life is easy. That does not mean that suffering or struggling goes away. It doesn't mean that mourning, sorrow, or grief, we ever reach a point that it's gone and we've moved on past it. That that won't happen in this life. But understanding who Jesus is does mean that we know the one who brought us into whatever situation of life we're in. Whatever the storm is or whatever you want to call it, we know the one who brought us there and we know the one who will bring us to the other side. Understanding who Jesus is does mean that we have access to the deep well of God's perfect and lasting joy and peace because it can only be found in him. Understanding who Jesus is does mean that we have hope that he will return and all wrongs that we experience will be righted. Understanding who Jesus is does mean that we can know him, that we can worship, that we can praise him, thank him for who he is, because he is worthy.